Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatrician and scientist talks about the connection he found between airborne pesticide spraying to kill mosquitoes and a higher rate of diagnoses of autism in children. We can't be sure in sort of a chicken or egg type scenario whether it's the pesticide exposure that's bumping up the risk of developmental delay slightly or is it the mosquito exposure. Then we'll discuss a condition called aphasia and some related research underway in Syracuse. Some of our recent findings suggest that yes, we actually can look at the electrical activity of the brain and tell whether or not the person is going to make an error. And we'll hear about the dangerous misuse of the drug fentanyl. You know, it works for a while, but then you want something bigger and more. You want it to last longer, you want it to be more intense. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse, but first, the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk about a communication disorder called aphasia. Then we'll hear how the medication fentanyl is being misused with dangerous repercussions. But first, we'll hear from a pediatrician and scientist about the connection between mosquito spraying and a rise in the diagnoses of autism in children. A pediatrician and researcher at Penn State who graduated from Upstate Medical University has some interesting research showing that rates of diagnosis of neurodevelopmental delay were higher in a region that conducted airborne pesticide spraying to kill mosquitoes. Dr. Stephen Hicks is talking with us today by telephone to tell us more about his work. Thank you, Dr. Hicks. Oh, thank you for having me. So this was research you uh, got started in um, during your time at Upstate, is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, in my final year of pediatric residency, uh, I got the idea uh, to do this study based off of uh, some published work that came out of California looking at um, possible connections between pesticide use and rates of autism. Okay. Now, the paper that I saw, um, it describes an area near our regional medical center that employs yearly aerial pyrethroid pesticide applications to combat mosquito-borne encephalitis. That's we, correct. We're talking about the Cicero Swamp? Yes. Okay. Yep. And, and it's not just encephalitis, but other mosquito-borne diseases as well, right? Sure. The pesticide targets uh, mosquito populations that carry a variety of diseases, but the real concern are the ones that cause uh, brain-damaging infections, things like West Nile and Eastern Equine Encephalitis. Okay. So tell me how the study was done. So the study, I think probably uh, first just to give some background about how it came about, um, the study that came out of uh, California in 2015 uh, showed a link between a particular type of pesticide called pyrethroids and rates of autism in that region. And as I was reading the study, um, I realized that the same type of pesticide was used in the Syracuse area over the Cicero Swamp to uh, combat mosquito-borne infections. So I thought we had a unique opportunity to potentially either corroborate and provide some evidence bolstering the claims from that study or even maybe refute uh, what they had found. 
Um, so we looked in the regions that were within a two-mile radius of the aerial spraying that's done in the Cicero Swamp, and that distance was uh, chosen specifically because the authors in the California study had shown that to be the kind of critical distance that you needed to live within uh, pesticide exposure. And then we picked a control area on the other side of the greater Syracuse region that had similar socioeconomic and demographic variables to the people that lived there, similar distance to the medical center. And we looked at rates of developmental delay diagnoses among the children that lived in the area without uh, the aerial exposure to pesticides and in the area that did have aerial exposures to pesticides. Interesting. So, um, and what, what years were you looking at? So the study included um, sort of a five-year range from 2010 to 2015. Okay, so very current. Yes. So what, um, um, what were your findings? Well, among, there's about 20,000 children living in the region where the pesticides are applied via airplane. Um, and about 40,000 children living in the area without the pesticide application. And the rates of autism were about 1.3 times higher in the area that was receiving aerial pesticide application. So to, to put that in sort of more interpretable numbers, if there was 1,000 kids in the area that had aerial pesticide exposure, 19 of them had autism. And if there are 1,000 kids in the area without the exposure, 15 had autism or developmental delay. Oh, okay. So it's not a groundbreaking difference. It's a statistically significant difference. But, um, but it doesn't sound as alarming when you put it in those numbers. Exactly, yeah. So, and, and that makes sense. We know that autism and developmental delay are largely controlled by genetic factors. We know that from studies of twins. So if you take two identical twins and one has autism, the other has over a 90% chance of having autism. That's because they share the same genes. But in some cases, so in 10% of those identical twins, they don't both have autism. Okay. So there is a role for environmental factors there. I think what you're likely seeing in cases of autism and developmental delay are children who are set up or at risk for it because of their underlying genetics and something in their, um, either in the womb or after delivery in their environment um, sort of is that extra push uh, alongside their genetic basis that drives them to have a developmental delay. But the genetic basis in your population would be similar in the two areas that you compared, right? Theoretically, yeah. We yeah. don't have, we didn't do genetic studies on any of these children. They're all actually de-identified, so we don't know a any of their names or medical record numbers. It's basically just a, a population-based study. And, um, and do you know if you captured all of the, the kids that were diagnosed? So that's another limitation to this study. So it relies on um, a child having come to the SUNY Upstate Medical University for care, uh, so, and then having a diagnosis in their medical record. So the, that approach is, has some strengths to it. So one is that if the diagnosis is there, we can be fairly confident that it's an accurate diagnosis because it's entered by a physician or a clinician. Um, the other way to do this type of study would be to call people on the phone 
then you're relying on um, parental or teacher um, report or caregiver report of developmental status. So you'd get a, you'd catch more people with that second approach, but the accuracy of the diagnosis might not be quite mm -hmm. as high. Okay. All right. And then um, you looked at, obviously, the pesticide spraying, but could there be other differences, environmental differences in these two regions? Could there be something else to blame for this? or, or Yeah, not? absolutely. Um, so we used lots of fancy statistical methods to try and control for all the other factors that are implicated in rates of autism and developmental delay diagnosis, things like poverty rates, uh, population density, uh, race and sex, uh, prematurity rates, birth rates, um, all those things we did our best to control for. But at the end of the day, there's a multitude of factors that contribute to a child's environment, right? And so probably the most um, easily identifiable one here is mosquitoes. So we can't be sure in sort of a chicken or egg type scenario whether it's the pesticide exposure that's bumping up the risk of developmental delay slightly, or is it the mosquito exposure? Because we know that things like Zika virus, right, which has emerged in the last two years or so, does cause developmental delays and problems with brain development. No one has studied yet this yet with West Nile virus. There's no, West Nile virus, if it causes encephalitis, is devastating to a child's brain. But there can be subclinical infections. So an infection with West Nile virus may not always cause encephalitis. It might cause just fatigue and a low-grade fever um, and per perhaps some other low-grade symptoms, but we don't know if that leads to developmental delay here. Well, interesting. I've got some more questions, but this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Hicks, a pediatrician and researcher at Penn State who graduated from Upstate Medical University. He has some exciting research showing that neurodevelopmental delay diagnosis rates or autism diagnosis rates were higher in a region with aerial pesticide application. So you found some statistically significant um, differences are they enough for people to act on? In other words, is there a reason for people to be concerned? No, and I definitely want to stress that um, here. I, I think these results are certainly not large enough um, or significant enough that people need to uh, pull up stakes and move out of the area uh, or that we need to, as a community, be abandoning pesticide use practices. They're important for... Um, preventing these really devastating encephalitis uh, illnesses that mosquitoes carry. So I want to make that really clear. Because your, your work does not say that pesticides cause autism. No, it is right. not a causative study. Okay. Uh, all it shows is a potential relationship between an area where pesticides are used in a different sort of way and slightly higher rates of developmental delay diagnoses. What I think the, the study does sort of, why it's important, is this makes physiologic sense, right? These chemicals are designed to attack the nervous system in mosquitoes. So we need to be thinking about, as scientists, is it possible that they could be affecting the developing nervous system of our children? And this needs to be continued to look, be looked at and studied. Um, it should be looked at in animal models so we can actually test and see if this is causing uh, problems with brain development 
Uh, we need to bring in these uh, children who live in these areas perhaps and have developmental delay and look to see if they're bioaccumulating these types of pesticides um, within their bodies. That would be one thing to look at. Um, probably the easiest and most simple place to start is the public health department recommends that people stay indoors for up to an hour following these sprayings each summer. They request that people close outdoor vents of window unit air conditioners, remove ch outdoor children's toys, cover gardens. And to my knowledge, I don't know if any of these people have looked at whether these requests um, or recommendations are being studied or not. So that would be a good place to start. Certainly. Or if, if families are actually following those guidelines. Right, yeah. So I think we, the guidelines are out there. Whether or not they're getting to people and people are following them, uh, we, should, we should just start there probably and make sure that that's the case. Well, are there potentially um, safer or more effective methods of mosquito control? Um, well, after the Zika outbreak in the last uh, two years, there's been a, a big push for alternative methods of mosquito control. One of them that I'm aware of is um, to introduce a strain of mosquitoes that would basically outbreed the type that carry Zika virus. I, I don't know if uh, those genetically modified mosquitoes are also able to outbreed and um, compete with the type in the area that cause West Nile virus and Eastern equine encephalitis. Um, and certainly introducing genetically modified mosquitoes has its own set of issues. Sure. But um, that's potentially an, one way that you could sort of combat this problem without using pesticides, but I, I think we're a long way from, from that as a potential injunction. So for now, probably following the public health department's recommendations and doing our best to minimize exposure to the pesticides is probably our best bet. So that's, um, yeah, for now, that's what families need to do. Um, make sure that they stay indoors and, and follow the guidelines when the spraying does take place. Right. Okay. Well, I thank you for your uh, going over this study with us. I appreciate it. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Hicks. He's an Upstate alum who is a pediatrician and a researcher at Penn State. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on Air. on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We have with us today an expert in aphasia. Ellen Riley, a research assistant professor in neurology at Upstate and an assistant professor in communication sciences and disorders at SU, as well as the director of the Syracuse University Aphasia Lab. Welcome, welcome Ellen. Thank you. Okay, so what is aphasia? 
Well, so aphasia is a communication disorder that focuses on um, difficulty processing language. And this often occurs as a result of damage to the brain, so damage specifically to language areas of the brain. So this can manifest as difficulty, um, difficulty understanding language or difficulty expressing language. And that can be spoken language, so understanding speech, or it could also be written language, understanding um, and understanding uh, written words, so reading or expressing. Wow. So what area of the brain, is, is it in the front, on the sides, in the back? What area of the brain are we talking about? So typically we're talking about the left hemisphere of the brain. So okay. language networks are fairly complex. So you might hear terms like you know, Broca's area or Wernicke's area as being involved in the language network. And those, those are areas are involved in the language network. But now we know that there's a very complex uh, in complex involvement of a lot of different brain areas, but mostly in the left hemisphere. Now, it's um, a brain injury or a brain disease? Or- uh, so it can be um, from a variety of different causes. So the primary cause of aphasia is from stroke. So most people who end up with aphasia have it as a result of stroke. But this can come from um, any kind of brain injury, so like a traumatic brain injury or an infection or um, a a brain tumor or even a neurodegenerative disease like dementia. So does it, um, I guess, depending on the cause, does it, is it a gradual does aphasia develop gradually or is it a, a something that happens quickly? Yeah, so depending on the cause, so typically with uh, with a stroke, it's going to happen quickly. So at, when, the, when the stroke happens, then the damage from the stroke will then cause the aphasia and possibly other co-occurring disorders. And then, but if it happens from something else like um, a, a, grow, a slow-growing tumor or from uh, like a dementia, then the, then the process is going to become be more gradual. So does it ever get better? I mean, you, you hear people that have a stroke and they, they do recover somewhat. If you have aphasia, does it ever go away or get better? Yeah. So everybody has a very different pattern. So it's something, it's something that we're in the, 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 the aphasia research world. We're trying to, we're trying to address that question a little bit better. Um, and try to predict, have better predictors for how somebody is going to recover from aphasia. But we do know that people do recover, maybe not to the extent um, where they're communicating the same as they did before the stroke, but um, definitely with, uh, with the application of other kinds of treatments. So um, there's some spontaneous recovery that occurs within the first few months after a stroke. And then with the addition of things like speech therapy, that can also um, help improve recovery outcomes, more specifically for language, speech and language. Okay. All right. Um, Now, if I understand you correctly, you can lose the ability to speak but can you retain the ability to understand speech? Yes. Yeah, so depending on the type of aphasia that you have, so wherever, so say going back to the stroke example, so if you have a stroke um, and it's in usually in the more anterior front parts of the brain, you're more likely to have what we might call more of an expressive aphasia, so more difficulty producing language, but you might be okay for understanding language. Um, advice, you know, Vice versa, you could have a more of a posterior kind of damage and then have more difficulty understanding language and less difficulty producing language. So there can be differences. But so typically, it's very individualized. It is like. extremely individualized. But typically, people who have aphasia have some level of difficulty across the different, um, b- across both uh, expression and 
uh, comprehension. Okay. Um, how prevalent is aphasia in the United States? So it's estimated that there's anywhere between one and two million people in the United States who have aphasia. Is it mostly older people? Um, you know, yes and no. So it's it's kind of interesting because some of the more recent statistics have shown that the the number of strokes in younger people has been increasing in the past several years. And it's really still unclear why that would be. Um, but so we, t- we tend to think about aphasia and stroke as being an old, older person's um, disease and disorder, but um, more and more young, younger people are developing stroke and aphasia. Um, and similarly, is it more, do you see it more in men or women? Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think that there's... Uh, Probably falls along stroke um, I, Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's more, a greater chance of either men or women having aphasia. Okay. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Ellen Riley. Uh, she's the director of the Aphasia Lab at Syracuse University. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, but tell me a little more about how aphasia affects a person's ability to communicate. Sure. So with aphasia, there are several different types of aphasia. So some people have dif- more difficulty understanding, other people have more difficulty expressing, and then, um, but most people have some difficulty with both of those both of those things. So you can imagine that in communication, we have to be able to understand and also express ourselves. So that can that can complicate things. So when somebody is trying to communicate, that um, with another person, then the other person may not understand uh, what's what's going on with that person with aphasia, and so the communication breakdown often occurs because of a lack of understanding about the disorder. Okay, are there um, tips for? Com- I mean, how how can you still communicate with yes. someone that's aphasic? Yeah, absolutely. So there's some things that you can do as um, the person without aphasia communicating, and then there are some things you can do to encourage the person who has aphasia. So just some general tips. Of course, everybody's going to be a little bit different, and some, and everybody's going to have their own preferences. So one thing I always like to tell people is to just ask the individual. So ask them what is what are some things that they prefer when you're communicating with them. Because oftentimes they'll be able to tell you, or, or sometimes they have um, a card. That tells that will tell their uh, the person they're communicating with some tips that work for them. So a lot of people who have aphasia do have those those resources with them. But just some general tips for communicating things like maintaining eye contact, um, making sure to reduce background noise. So it can be really difficult for somebody who has a language disorder to process information even without background noise, but the background noise can just complicate that even further. So reducing background noise, maintaining eye contact, making sure you have the person's attention before you start speaking. Also things like um, simplifying your sentence structure. But the key to that is remembering that the person that you're talking with is an intelligent adult and not speaking to them as if they're a child and not raising your voice um, as if they have uh, a hearing impairment. It's not a hearing impairment, but it's a language. It's difficulty comprehending language. And so those are different things. So not making assumptions that they can't hear you, um, but trying to simplify your your language structure a bit um, and slow down your speech a little. So some other things that you can that you can do to encourage the person with aphasia is to let them speak and give them time to speak. Often, you know, we as the the listener try to jump in because we feel 
uh, and this, this urgency to try to, to fill the space and try to guess at what they're trying to communicate. And that can be very frustrating for some individuals who have aphasia. So try to resist the urge to jump in and, and finish their sentences for them. Also providing them with other kinds of communication tools. So um, a lot of people with aphasia have developed strategies for drawing or writing um, or being able to cue themselves with maybe a, a, written, a written letter, a written word. So what, providing. What about electronics? Yes, that's a great texting question. Texting or email. Yes. And- yes. So um, one challenge with that is understanding that uh, that with language writing is often affected. So it's not just a matter of being able to provide somebody with um, with a, an electronic device that will then allow them to communicate, but there are definitely some tools that are available um, through phones and iPads and things of that nature that will assist with communication. Interesting. Well, are there any um, treatments or therapies that make aphasia uh, reduce its severity or, or cure it? Um, so I wouldn't say that there is a, a quote-unquote cure for aphasia, but there are definitely treatments um, that are available that can reduce the impact of aphasia and improve language outcomes um, post, uh, post-stroke. And most of the time, somebody who has aphasia is going to see a speech-language pathologist, and the speech-language pathologist is likely to provide a variety of different kinds of um, treatments uh, to try to address that person's communication difficulty. So on um, part of the treatment will probably address the, 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 the sort of the specific uh, language difficulty that the person is having. So for example, if the person has a lot of difficulty um, coming up or putting together grammatical sentences, then the treatment in the therapy room might focus on how do you actually uh, uh, focus on relearning how to put together grammatical sentences. So very focused on, on the impairment in s- itself, improving the impairment. Um, but other parts of the treatment are likely to focus on trying to come up with strategies and use strategies in real life that will help the person communicate. So doing things like self-cueing and, and trying to, to draw something that they're not able to express through words. So using other kinds of um, strategies that will assist with the actual communication in real life. So it's often a combination of those two um, kinds of approaches that are the most effective. The um, aphasia lab at SU, is that, do you have speech language pathologists there? Is that where you see people? So, so I am a, um, a speech language pathologist, and I do see individuals not for clinical therapy, but for in the context of research studies. Okay. So the lab is more for research? Yes, the lab okay. is for research. So tell me, um, are there any recent findings that you can share? Yes. Uh, so we just published something a few months ago, kind of some interesting preliminary work looking at um, using activity from the brain, so electrical activity of the brain measured by EEG, and using that activity to predict error responses within um, a naming task. So people who have aphasia, one of the most uh, universal difficulties that they have is coming up with uh, coming up with words, so word finding difficulty within conversation. Also, if you give them um, a, a bunch of pictures, they often have difficulty coming up with the names for for some of those pictures. And this is something that is not always consistent. So if you show them a picture of a bird, one day they might not be able to name bird, but then the next day they might be able to name bird just fine. So this is not it's not always the same pictures okay. that you get errors on, but. Um, 
so you're going to, so, so in our study, we were looking at, can we actually predict when the person is able or when the person is going to be correct or incorrect or produce a specific type of error? So some of our recent findings suggest that, yes, we actually can look at the, the electrical activity of the brain and, um, and tell whether or not the person is going to make an error. So what, where is this going to be useful? Well, as we develop this, we want to develop this as a clinical tool so that uh, eventually we can inform clinicians and possibly even the clients themselves about what's what their brain is doing. And so we could pr- potentially provide more, um, more effective feedback or, or cueing before they even make a response. Do you have other studies um, that are being done now? Yes. So one study that we're working on right now is actually looking at um, fluctuations in cognitive fatigue and attention um, during a sort of a simulated speech therapy session. So one uh, complaint that a lot of people who have stroke and aphasia have, it has to do with the amount of fatigue that they experience. Um, we don't really know the source of this fatigue, and this is another thing that I hope to explore in the lab. However, we know that this happens. This is something that um, fit, uh, speech-language pathologists observe. This is something that clients report um, that they experience this kind of fatigue. So what we're asking now is, do these fluctuations in attention presumably due to this cognitive fatigue, do they actually impact the performance within the therapy session? And does that eventually impact uh, uh, ultimately speech and language recovery? Well, interesting. It sounds like you've got a lot going on there. And I know um, listeners can check uh, the aphasialab.syr.edu website to learn about what you have going on at any point in time. Yes. Um, And then the phone number 315-443-8688 if anyone wants to learn more, right? Yes. Okay. My guest has been Assistant Professor in Communication Sciences and Disorders, Ellen Riley, Director of the Syracuse University Aphasia Lab. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Kids' terrorism fears or everyday dangers. Well, folks, the other day somebody asked me, how can we parents talk with our kids about the latest terrorist mass murder? Well, first things first. Hopefully, you've already built a relationship with your children in which they can turn to you anytime they're scared or upset. We do that by being caring and loving all the time, including when we're upset with them for breaking the rules. Then, instead of hitting or yelling, which can lead our kids to feel scared and avoid us in the tough times, teach them what's appropriate. Give them time to think what if they've broken our agreements and Support them later by noticing when they're being good and praising them. But let's assume you've got an overall good relationship. Congratulations, good work, mom and dad. Then, if your child comes to you upset about terrorism, let him or her know that whatever they feel, scared, sad, 
angry. Lots of us feel that way. You find it upsetting, too, when people are hurt needlessly. Ask specifically what they're upset about. Then, using language they understand, put the danger into perspective. Like, sweetie, while there are lots of pictures on TV about what happened, that was a long ways away from here. There's almost no chance that's going to happen here to us. The police are already working on making sure those things don't happen again. And I'm always going to be here to take care of you no matter what happens. I already do that, like taking your hand and crossing the street with you and feeding you healthy food and making sure you go to school and have time to play outside. Now, with older children, tweens and teens, there's a chance to put terrorism into perspective and teach about much more immediate dangers, too. Like, my love, terrorism is scary to everyone. And our police and government are working hard to prevent those things from happening again. But there are people who are much more dangerous than terrorists here. Someone who offers you a first cigarette. You know, one out of three smokers die from smoking. More dangerous, too, are people who are suggesting trying drugs or drinking and driving or having unprotected sex or who force you to have sex or suggest bullying other kids or suggest joining a gang or not doing your homework or skipping school. Our family rules are there to keep you safe now and have a happy life later. Even if you break one of our agreements, let me know so we can work together to understand and deal with the problem the best way possible. For example, if you're at a party and some kids start drinking, please just call me. I'll come and get you no matter when or where. And remember, I'm always going to be here to love you, no matter what happens. I'm Rich O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, the dangers of fentanyl. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The drug fentanyl has been in the news lately. It's a narcotic pain reliever that's similar to morphine but 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, and it's deadly when it's misused. Here to educate us is Michelle Kaliva, the Administrative Director for the Upstate New York Poison Center at Upstate. This is a 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year operation, serving as the resource for the management of poisonings and drug information in 54 counties of Upstate New York. 
Thank you for being here, Michelle. Thank you. Appreciate it. So it's your staff, the, the nurses, pharmacists, toxicologists, physicians, your staff of the Poison Center um, that provides advice on how to treat people who've overdosed on fentanyl in New York, pretty much everywhere outside of New York City, right? Correct. We, uh, not Westchester and not Long Island and not the city. So it's about 125 hospitals. Wow. Okay. And you've been busy with the fentanyl crisis. Busy. So uh, tell tell us what is fentanyl. So fentanyl is an opioid, and it's prescribed, and it's prescribed appropriately for people that have severe pain. It's a good drug when used correctly. It can be um, oftentimes in the form of a patch. So somebody that has severe bone pain, for example, might wear a fentanyl patch. Bone and pain, not from arthritis, probably, but more maybe from maybe they have uh, cancer, bone cancer, uh, cancer or something. Cancer or something. It's okay. usually it is primarily used for severe pain control. Okay. All right. Um, and so it's been, being misused, um, just people are getting their hands on it um, from friends' medicine cabinets or from yeah. illegal prescriptions or all of the above? All of the above. So it's, it's the patches are being chewed um, instead of gum. People are chewing the patches or they're squeezing the liquid out of the, the patches. What's really concerning is that it's being mixed with heroin. So it's used to augment the, the euphoria that people are feeling with heroin. But unfortunately, what it does is it, it makes the bad symptoms um, even worse. Oh. So a lot of our heroin deaths um, are because fentanyl has been added to it. Do the people taking them know that it's been added necessarily? Not, necessarily. not necessarily. That's real disconcerting, too. Um, you know, heroin's bad, just bad by itself. But, you know, when you get a batch of it, you really never know what it's been cut with. And the big thing right now is to cut it with fentanyl. It supposedly makes the euphoria last longer. So the appeal is euphoria. It's always it's, it's always to make, you, to make you feel good or blunt, blunt how badly you're feeling. Um, is it easy to get a hold of? Can you buy it easily on the street? Or? So it's a prescription. So, you know, fortunately, we have that wonderful iStop program right now that, that makes shopping around for opioids more difficult. We have, you know, I think a really good infrastructure in place where it's it's more difficult to go from doctor to doctor or from hospital to hospital looking or drug seeking. Um, that being said, yeah, this stuff's available. It's out there. It's on the streets, and, and um, people are using it. So the iStop program, so if, if I'm prescribed a pain medicine and then I go to an urgent care center and say I really need some pain medicine, the doctors there are able to check and see, wait a minute, you just got a prescription three days ago, right? Exactly. It's okay. exactly. So, I mean, it, it's it's not to get in the way of people who legitimately need medication. I mean, that's that's there, that there's all the appropriate um, processes in place for that. But it's for somebody who's who's going from facility to facility or doctor to doctor looking for additional drugs okay. like opioids. But nevertheless, some of it's out there it's for, to be the sold. Is it expensive? No, actually, all of these agents now, that, which is really the, the really even more disconcerting part, this stuff is so much more accessible, both from a cost perspective and from a supply perspective. It's, it's out there, and it's cheap. And again, it's being cut and mixed and added to all sorts of different types of, of drugs and then being sold as whatever you want it to be, heroin predominantly. And so it's easy to mix and, and mm -hmm. work with, too. It's not, this is not um, the, the crack cocaine or whatever that, it, that people are blowing, meth right, that people yeah, are right, blowing. No, this is different, and this is, you know, can be liquefied, and then it can be primarily mixed with heroin and then injected. That's how it's primarily abused. Not exclusively, but primarily. 
All right. So recently, I know I read uh, newspaper stories about a law enforcement officer somewhere who absorbed some of this into his system um, when he was cleaning up a crime scene. Yeah, dermal was, exposure. Because again, if you think about it, the 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 patches, the dermatitic patches, which have fentanyl, they're made to soak be absorbed to soak in. So we're concerned. I just did a, a program for law enforcement, and that was one of the first concerns that they they brought up um, was, you know, what do we do to protect ourselves? So you want some sort of barrier if you're cleaning Rubber up. gloves or yep. something? Okay. Well, yeah, who would have thought? I mean, this officer was hospitalized. He was. From, um, so it can mm-hmm. be pretty severe. Yeah. Um, what happens to someone who ingests fentanyl, like physically? What does it do to them? Sure. So like with any opioid, including heroin, it, it causes you to lower your, your breathing rate. So it, 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 it um, actually blunts your respiratory effort. And in addition to that, it makes you very, very drowsy. Um, you, you can be mildly drowsy, lethargic, to be in a coma. Um, and, of course, when you're not responsive and your breathing rate drops down to four, ultimately you just stop breathing. So the fatalities around this are significant. I mean, people die from heroin abuse. Um, you add fentanyl to it, the likelihood just increases. It's just even that much it's more. It's even that much. Mm-hmm. Um, does Narcan reverse? It does, but this is a tricky part. So Narcan works. Narcan's a great drug. It pushes the opioid off the opioid receptors in, in, in your body. The thing with fentanyl is that it usually takes more than one dose. So somebody has Narcan in the field and they give the person, I'm talking about um, not EMS, I'm talking about a layperson who responsibly has Narcan, has naloxone, they give it to the person in the field. That person's going to wake up. Um, 45 minutes later, they're going to go down again because it has a very, very um, long duration of effect. Wow. So they really need subsequent dosing. If they get to the hospital, we usually um, will start them on a Narcan drip. So they'll get an infusion of it to maintain the, the drug off those uh, opioid receptors. So, yes, it works, but in much greater doses. And sometimes you give a single dose in the field. It doesn't work either. You have to give a, a higher dose. So... Yeah, it's a little trickier. And Narcan, again, is the the medication that's available. You don't need a prescription for it, right? No, it's great. And people are being trained. And we really encourage people to take advantage of the free training programs and to get um, the Narcan kits and have them available. I really believe it's like having an EpiPen. If you have somebody in your home that is a using or abusing an opioid, you want to make sure you somebody in your family, somebody who's around, has that Narcan available just as you would if somebody had a peanut allergy or a, an allergy to, to, to bumblebees or something. You want to you wanna have that medication to reverse it. doesn't help them get over their addiction, but it saves their life in that immediate life. period of time. I'm assuming pharmacists can show people how to use it? There's a lot of training that's going on locally. Um, okay. If you access the Department of Health website or the New York State Department of Health website, both of those, if you just Google either of those, Onondaga County Department of Health, New York State, there's a lot of resources available, and there's multiple training going on across the, the city. And some emergency departments actually will have patients, ours, for example, that, that leave would actually get a Narcan kit, Narcan training, in some cases. How would a person be able to tell if their um, child or a loved one or a friend is taking fentanyl? Yeah, so they would, like with any of the opioids, they would appear very, very drowsy, very lethargic, um, are their pupils pretty doing odd anything? of it. Their pupils would be tiny. Okay. Um, they would they would look really pretty out of it. Again, you know, not real, not real engaged, not real responsive. 
Is it something um, that a, a person who's taking fentanyl takes it repeatedly, sure. gets addicted to yeah, it, absolutely. and is yep. on it? Okay. Yeah. So they, and again, you know, it, it happens multiple ways. Sometimes people are prescribed it, they like it, they're addicted to it. Um, some people get it unknowingly, as we, I said before. It might be mixed with the heroin, and they, you know, they're they're they enjoy it, they like the, the euphoria, and they stick with it. How would you recognize that the person has overdosed or has taken too much of it? I mean, if they're, I guess if they're out. They would be out. They would have, they would be, you know, they would not be breathing. They would be unresponsive. You'd come upon them and. And And then you'd need to call 911. Absolutely. Or Narcan. You would do, and, and, and that's the other piece of it. Great that everybody has a naloxone that has a Narcan kits. But I always stress that you call 911 first and then you give it because you want to make sure you have backup when that person wakes up and also in case you need more. Okay. All right. Now, someone who um, is using fentanyl, um, does that make them, do they, do they build up a tolerance and then start craving something stronger? Yeah, that's with all of these addictions. So that, that's even the case with, with the heroin. You know, it works for a while, but then you want something bigger and more. You want it to last longer. You want it to be more intense. I think that's why we're seeing so much of heroin being adulterated now. There seems to be a lot of experimentation with how we can make that heroin better, stronger, how we can make that euphoria more intense, how we can make it last longer. So there's an awful lot. There's a lot of synthetic um, Opioid products, heroin-like substances that are being developed and that are circulating throughout the um, throughout the United States. There is a drug called carfentanil. As it sounds, it's somewhat similar to fentanyl, but it's used to treat elephants. It's an elephant tranquilizer. It's a veterinary drug. It is, and I really have to stress. In fact, when I'm teaching this, I usually have a picture of a human and an elephant, and this drug is used to bring down elephants. And it's being abused now. And what do you think is going to happen to a person who takes a They're drug? They're going to makes... have a very difficult time um, coming back from it. We don't even know if the Narcan's going to work and how much of it they're going to need. And we are hearing cases of it circulating through the United States. Again, it is a drug to take down an elephant. It is not intended for human consumption. Are, do people have an easier time getting their hands on a veterinary drug than a human drug? I think right now they're having an easy time getting a hold on of anything. all of it, everything and all of it. And, um, again, there's some there's some synthetic heroin that's being produced that's out there. We have abs- multiple names, different, different names, different forms. We have absolutely no idea um, exactly what symptoms these drugs are going to produce and whether or not we're going to have the antidote. If someone isn't breathing and they're a hus- in a hospital... We can put them on a ventilator. We can breathe for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they're at home and they're not breathing, you know, there's the Narcan kit, and then it's getting them into the hospital. So I'm not saying we can't help these folks. I'm just saying it's tricky because if, if they go down in the field, if they go down at home, there's some time that lapses between when they're found and when they get into a healthcare facility. Once we get in, they get them into healthcare. We can do our best to, to save them, but it's it's a little tricky in terms of the, um, the time lapse and also what they're taking. The, uh, the deaths from drug overdoses and fentanyl overdoses um, in our county, do you know, are they, are they mostly the carfentanil? No. Or not? I can't okay. say that we have even have any documented carfentanil cases. We have okay. some cases. Well, we hear, anecdotally, we're hearing that there may be some um, 
when I'm visiting the other hospitals throughout the state. I may hear, gee, we think it may have been carfentanil. We're not really sure. No, most of the deaths we're hearing about, though, are heroin and fentanyl. We hear later from the medical examiner on autopsy that they that it was That's it was mixture. fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Is it? Um, do you see deaths from people who it was their first time to try it? Oh, of course. Really? Yeah, it, even with heroin, with any of it, sometimes it's it's so. F- funny isn't the right word it's just it's so disconcerting how one can person can take the drug and have one effect another person can take a drug and have a much more serious effect but also you just don't know what the combination is when you're buying things off the street now um buying things off the street what about buying offline i think i've seen uh stories about yeah people being able to order You can order all of this. But again, you know, what's the dosing? It's not regulated. It's not like it's a regular pharmaceutical company that's going to have full disclosure. So you never really quite know what you're getting. But, yeah, certainly. Could you buy drugs offline? Absolutely. But then you have to know how to take it, and you have to take the appropriate dose, not not the mega doses that people are using. Wow. Well, my guest has been Michelle Kaliva from Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We live in a staccato time, short, intense bursts of talk or tweets or conversation that jumps from looking at our phones to looking at the real person standing next to us. It's not a time that invites leisure, but sickness or aging or healing can do that. I have two poets who share that now unusual activity of living in the moment for the moment. Here is naturalist, artist, and perhaps not surprisingly, snail expert Marla Coppolino and her poem, Slowing. Moving distinctly and unconventionally with deliberate, unhurried pace, a whispered Tai Chi dance in the nucleus non-worry. Now I see the spaces between the raindrops and the soft outer glow of seeds and sprouts and leaves and larvae and the multicolors of lichens and patterns on spiders and cicadas whose calls swell in pitch and volume. I calmly study ripples in the wake of the atmosphere of those who advance more quickly than I choose. And in similar fashion, California poet and social worker Donna Emerson gives us some breathing room in sipping tea. Since surgery slowed me down, I live in an old summer, sip from morning's cup. My mouth lingers on its porcelain edge. Tea steam wafts toward the manzanita. Tea fog drapes me, floats me away from porch and chair. What an easy landing on the spread jasmine feet now sticky, honey dew in my nostrils, walking on tiptoe toward the far fence.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, join us for a look at how dreams can be part of the grieving process. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.